Welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team sifts through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which were brought to you by the beautiful Clay Smith and Nicole McCoyne. The first article on the docket is the 2019 novel coronavirus important information for clinicians from JAMA. As you've probably all already heard, this is a new viral threat and frontline clinicians need to be kept up to date. On December 31st, 2019, Beijing notified the World Health Organization of a cluster of pneumonia cases in Wuhan. That's the largest city in the Hubei province of China. These cases were determined to be caused by novel coronavirus, now given the rather catchy yet ominous name of COVID-19. Since then, the number of cases has been climbing every day. For the most recent figures, the CDC website is keeping up-to-date tallies with current information. Estimates for the number of cases is actually doubling every 6.4 days, and incubation time for the disease is anywhere from 5 to 14 days. And clinically, it presents similar to the influenza virus, but we're going to talk about that soon. For now, you should be putting up red flags for any returning travelers from Hubei, China especially anyone inside that incubation period. If this is one of your patients, put a mask on them. Get them in a respiratory isolation and do not forget to grab an N95 mask for yourself. Data is still coming and the next paper is going to have a lot of that data, but it appears to be fairly rare in children and the majority of infections are actually quite mild. And hospitalized patients consistently have radiographic findings of pneumonia on chest x-ray and CT, with about one-third of those patients developing ARDS. Unfortunately, no antivirals are known to work yet, so the best measures are still going to be prevention. Basic public health precautions such as staying home when ill, hand washing, and good respiratory etiquette like covering your mouth and nose when sneezing or coughing continue to be strongly recommended. In a spoonful, a novel coronavirus is spreading in China and beyond. It's deadlier than SARS and presents as a flu-like illness. Consider asking your patients about travel to China, more specifically the Hubei province in patients with fever and cough. Now we're going to get a little bit more into the nitty-gritty. The next paper is the clinical features of patients infected with 2019 novel coronavirus in Wuhan, China from the Lancet. That last article was really just a summary. If you're still looking to hear more about COVID-19, we've got just what your heart desires. This is the Journal Feed's Coronavirus Deep Dive. But keep in mind that I'm only mentioning really some of the more salient points in order not to drown you in numbers through your earbuds. But keep in mind there's a more detailed summary up on the blog for you number-hungry folks. Just to begin with, there is obviously a lot we do not know about COVID-19. And knowledge is power, my friends. We have to put together all the information that we have in order to identify and care for patients with potential cases. 
But before we get to that, you might be wondering what on earth is COVID-19 anyways, and this is a new beta coronavirus. Kind of like a less known cousin of the SARS and MERS coronaviruses, about which we know a lot more. And it's yet to be seen how well what we know about SARS and about MERS is going to translate over to COVID. This article is hopefully going to help us out with that. This was by Huang and colleagues who described the clinical presentation and course for 41 admitted patients identified to have lab-confirmed COVID in a hospital in Wuhan, China. Before we get into some of the details on them, it's important demographically to know that 73% of these patients were male, and the median age was 49 years old, so you can keep that in mind. The major symptoms identified were fever, cough, and myalgia or fatigue in 98, 76, and 44% of patients respectively. Actually, dyspnea also became a quite significant feature of the disease, but this only came up later in the disease course, about eight days in. And after we've seen that, after we've seen their initial presentation, we're probably going to order some labs. Common lab findings are lymphopenia and AST elevations. These come along with a whole host of inflammatory markers, making up an entire cytokine storm, which seems to correlate well with ICU admissions. Also notably elevated were D-dimers and cardiac biomarkers. And of course, while we're running tests, let's see who ordered a scan. All patients had abnormalities on CT, and for all but one patient, that included bilateral involvement. And now to give you a bit of an idea of that time course that we teased at before, the median time from symptom onset to hospital admission was seven days following on each subsequent day by dyspnea on day 8 and ARDS on day 9, and then ICU admission and mechanical ventilation at 10.5 days. So that we have an idea of how many patients actually developed these problems, it was 29% of patients developed ARDS, and 32% required admission to the ICU. Then, nobody's favorite, but an outcome you can't argue with, 15% of patients died. That's 6 of the 41 patients. For comparison, that's actually higher than the SARS virus, which had a 10% mortality, but lower than the MERS virus, which had a 37% mortality. So that's a pretty good idea of everything that they did see. But equally important can be things that we didn't see. There were actually no children or adolescents among the 41 patients which the study authors felt might have been due to exposure bias. Also of note is that there are very few upper respiratory tract symptoms like rhinorrhea, sneezing, or sore throat. I find this interesting because coronavirus, or most coronaviruses that we're going to expose to, are actually things that cause the common cold. But this tells you that the novel coronavirus has its main targets deeper in the lower airways. But not a lot of GI involvement. And of course, if you're curious, there was no rise in procalcitonin. But I know what you really care about is treatment. And if you happen to get a case of this, at the moment, the best advice you can be given is just do what feels right. There are no golden nuggets 
to be found on that subject just yet. Teams are working on remdesivir as well as other antivirals, which showed some promise in SARS and in MERS outbreaks. Overall, though, you can rest assured that you can still follow your gut with these patients. The sickest patients appear the sickest. And this spoonful is no different from the last. Beware sick patients with flu-like illness and a relevant travel history. And so now, I promise that is the last of COVID-19 for this episode. So now we can move on to a slightly cheerier article that came from us out of the New England Journal of Medicine. This was healthcare spotting, a randomized control trial. Uh, for us, this is really how not to handle the frequent flyer. Some patients are just always going to be heavy users of healthcare resources. But I'm sure what we'd all like to know is that what if we just really threw the resources at them? What if we had an entire team of nurses, social workers, community health workers, everything, in order to help and try to reduce their use of the healthcare system in the future? More specifically, can we reduce admissions? This study was designed to tell us just that. This was an RCT of 800 super utilizers, which were patients with complex needs and frequent admissions, who were randomized to either the CANDEM Coalition of Healthcare Providers hotspotting program, which is that crackpot team that I kind of alluded to before, or usual care after hospital discharge. Candom being an economically challenged area in New Jersey, in case you're wondering. The patients enrolled in the program received home visits, phone calls, as well as primary healthcare visits. And yet, for the primary outcome of a 180-day readmission, there was no difference at about 62% in both groups. Additionally, the program had no benefit on downstream uptake of other resources. Clearly and unfortunately, this program is not the silver bullet we'd have hoped for. Though it does do well to highlight that our usual care is already pretty good at connecting patients to resources. It's just not really as feasible to reduce costs by reducing repeated missions. Or at least that's what this paper seems to show. And here's where our own author, Clay, actually points out some really great points on this study. And that this paper, this kind of paper, is why RCTs are so important for programs like this. High utilizers will not always be that way. And in this study, we saw what we would expect to see, and that was regression to the mean from a group of outliers. A regression that may well have appeared as a benefit had this been an observational study and not the much more robust RCT. Our spoonful, throwing a team of healthcare professionals at complex patients after discharge does not appear to reduce readmission any more than from what we're already doing. Ah, we've actually had some really great articles this week. I'm already excited. <laughs> and uh, pardon me for this long title, but this next article was the effect of stress ulcer prophylaxis with proton pump inhibitors versus histamine 2 receptor blockers in inpatient mortality among ICU patients receiving invasive mechanical ventilation. This was the peptic randomized clinical trial 
out of the JAMA. What it really boils down to is this was an RCT pitting PPIs against H2 blockers for ulcer prophylaxis. Which is better in critically ill patients? This was a massive cluster crossover RCT from 50 ICUs of almost 27,000 patients who were randomized to either preferential PPI use for six months or preferential H2 blocker use for six months, and then each of them crossed over. But once the dust settled from all of that very well-organized confusion, there was no difference in the primary outcome of a 90-day mortality. There was significant contamination between the groups, though, so that may well have muted any effect that we could have seen. That said, there were some differences between groups, though, like that there was less clinically significant GI bleeding in the PPI group, with a risk ratio of 0.73, and that comes out to a number needed to treat of 200. What this really seems like, though, is equipose. Looks like you could pick either one. And our author, Clay, he tends to favor PPIs. But do you agree with him? Our spoonful is that there is no difference in 90-day mortality when comparing PPIs to H2 blockers for stress ulcer prophylaxis in critically ill patients. So that's it for this week, guys. And as always, we at the Journal Feed would love to hear from you. Personally, I just love it when people say hi. Go on and say hi. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you have not already, you can sign up and get all of these spoon feeds daily through your email. We would like to keep up with the latest research, and we can help you do the same one spoonful at a time.